0: Grammy award winning musician Carlos Santana has sold more than 10 million copies of one album alone, his album entitled Supernatural. He has been interviewed often. Of course, I've read some of them. He openly informs people of the influence of an angel in his life. According to one interview that I read, Santana often hears this angel's voice as he meditates in front of his fireplace. For several years, he claims to be in contact with his spirit guide, whose name is Metatron. Metatron, he explained in one interview, is an archangel, a guide for him. In fact, there are a lot of people that evidently believe Metatron is the highest angelic being created. Now, obviously, that would raise flags for those of us who believe the word, because we know that the highest angelic being created fell, right? Right? Satan, Lucifer is his name, according to the scriptures, Isaiah 14 and 2 Corinthians 11, he's the angel of light. Well, here with candles lit, a yellow pad, legal pad at one side, Carlos Santana sits in his room, softly chanting, incense burning, candles flickering, and all of a sudden he explains, I hear a voice, an inner voice, and I know that I can trust it. It is the voice, of course, of Metatron. His voice has told me that I would be able to connect molecules with light over radio frequencies so that my music would be popular again. And then he said with perfect confidence to this reporter, you can trust his voice. His voice will never take you to the desert. It might not, but it might take you to hell, which is far worse than any desert. In our last study, we reintroduced the thought that angels come and deliver messages, and they have since the beginning of time. The apostle Paul warned the Galatians, not that an angel might deliver the gospel, but that he might deliver a different gospel, and so he warned them not to follow it. In fact, if they come to you bringing a different gospel than the one delivered by Christ through his apostles, let him be accursed, Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. Now for some time we have observed in our study through Revelation that the world has been captivated now by a man empowered and energized by an angel, the fallen angel, this man we have come to know as the Antichrist, and he has effectively been channeling the message of Satan to a gullible world that wants nothing to do with God, and of course they're set up then for anything. This fallen angel, through the Antichrist and the false prophet, this fallen angel then is deceiving the entire world. And at the height of his influence, at the height of the popularity of the Antichrist, somewhere just past the midpoint of the tribulation, John the Apostle records that angelic messengers arrive. And they have a message for the entire world, and we're able to contrast or compare their message with the rest of Scripture to, in fact, determine they are indeed from God and they are telling uh, the truth. The first angel we encountered in Revelation 14, verse 6, circles the globe, preaching that the human race needed to fear God and worship him. Why? Verse 7, because he is worthy of the worship of creation because he is the God of creation. He created all there is. This is a dramatic scene you can only imagine. This angel flying high in the sky, he's booming out with his voice that mankind happens to be worshipping the wrong God. They're listening to the wrong angel, so to speak. Then another angel appeared, we looked at him briefly in verse 8. He announces the coming collapse of the world kingdoms, referred to here as Babylon. This angel delivers a warning to all the nations that are drinking the wine of Babylon, he says. They are literally partying with the prince of darkness. You remember in Babylon of old, a man's hand suddenly appeared there in the the dining room of the king. And he wrote upon a wall strange words. And of course the king Belshazzar ran or had his messengers run for Daniel who came and delivered to him the interpretation of the message that basically said to this powerful, this most powerful kingdom of Babylon, you've been weighed in the balances by God and you lack what is necessary to please him. In other words, you are in trouble with God and you will fall. And that night Babylon fell to an invading army. Now, here, the message appears, only this time it's not a hand writing it on a wall, it's a voice loudly crying from heaven, saying, Babylon, you're in trouble with God. Again, weighed in the balances, and you lack what is necessary to please God. Effectively saying, you are in trouble with God. You can only imagine... How these angels held the attention of the human race as they circled the globe, preaching one after another. And now a third angel appears for our study today, verse 9, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10 of Revelation 14, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God. In other words, if you worship the enemy of God, you will experience the wrath of God. Look further There in verse 10, as he delivers this message, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the angels. Imagine this terrifying message. He is revealing the doom of those who follow, in this context here, those who follow the Antichrist. And he effectively is delivering a message that is intended to frighten the world, the most part of which has yet to receive the mark of the Antichrist. That would be the signature statement they are choosing to walk away from God the creator and follow Antichrist. So the angel comes out of the grace of God to deliver one more time. In fact, everybody on the planet will hear the message. Don't take that man's mark. If you do that, will seal your doom. That act of blasphemy. Obviously, in that act, they will choose to follow the Antichrist and choose to rebel against God. And God, we're told earlier in the letter to the Thessalonians, will send such strong delusion. They will, in fact, believe the lie. So they will be condemned and their condemnation will be Illustrated visually by the acceptance of this mark, and so he's warning them: You'll, you're going to drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. Now, there is, there, there are those who say our preaching or teaching should never scare unbelievers with the reality of hell. Well, then, neither study this this angel's message. That's exactly what's happening. Besides, how do you you preach about hell without scaring people? Hell is scary. It's frightening. It's terrifying. You can't expound on the reality of hell without frightening those who choose not to believe in God. Whether it's uncomfortable or not, it's the truth. Maybe you've come in here today believing that hell is a figment of somebody's imagination or maybe it's the creation of some religion to keep people civil and nice or honest or that hell is just a bad day stuck in a traffic jam and you get a flat tire no hang on in fact I'm glad you're here you might not be sure at this moment but I'm glad you're here the gospel listen is not just believe in Christ and repent of your sin in order to go to heaven it is also believe in Christ, repent of your sin in order to not go to hell. Avoiding the wrath of God, by the way, is a very good thing. And I'm going to spend three hours today recommending it to everybody. Avoid the wrath of God. Okay? It's as simple as that. This is the, this is the boiled down message of this angel. And I highly recommend you listen. His message is intended to frighten those tempted to take the mark of the beast. You know, it occurred to me in my study that the contemporary angels of today, you can go to Christian bookstores and read what they've said through people. It's interesting to me that the angels that make their way in and out of seances and musicians' living rooms and from the lips of new age gurus and false preachers have nothing to do with affirming the creative power and handiwork of God. They instead will tell you that you are divine and you have power to create your own reality. You just speak it to the universe. And this first angel delivered the gospel that God alone is creator. I don't know how many angelic messages I have heard or read about, but none of them talk about the coming collapse of the world's kingdom for those who don't believe in Christ, they'll be caught up in the wrath of God. Yeah, impending doom. Bad things are going to happen, but never appointing to Christ. Never. Most of the messages I've read about from supposed angels basically say that God loves everybody, and in a sense that's true, but have you ever heard a message about or from an angel that says, God is angry with you? And you are in deep trouble with God. That's this message. That'll pack him in. (laughs) Judgment is coming and God is really angry. That's my text for today. This is the message of the third angel. But this message, ladies and gentlemen, is the message our world needs to hear In fact, if you go back in history a little bit, you discover that this message sparked a great awakening. It all began with a man named Jonathan Edwards who was instrumental in this, used tremendously by God to light the fires of of conversion. He preached the message, the signature message, entitled, Sinners in the Hands of a Happy God. Oh, wait, no. Um... You're a little slow on the uptake now. I'm coming back with one more here. No, no, it's not. No, no. Here it is. Victims in the hands of a therapeutic God. I think it is funny, actually. How about, how about this? And this isn't really funny, but here's, here's another one. People who've just made bad choices in the hands of a loving God. Now, don't you hear that? Those are being preached today in our cities, and it's a little wonder why there is no awakening. Jonathan Edwards preached an authentic gospel message entitled, if you can imagine it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And here's an excerpt from his sermon manuscript, which he read, by the way, without ever looking up. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot and ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is sharp and held over them, and the pit has opened its mouth under them. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. That's the gospel of this angel and those who truly represent God. We typically don't think of God as angry or furious or wrathful. And if he is, it certainly wouldn't be with me or with you. Besides, we're in church. That ought to be some kind of safety net. No, evidently, the anger of God and the fury of God happens to be part of Satan's strategy, I believe, to keep it all quiet. In fact, when angels are sent to deliver messages... From God. They usually have to tell people to stop being afraid. They represent the Holy One they've come from. And now here they're creating terror in the, in the ears and eyes and hearts of those who hear and see them. This is the other side of God, by the way, that they want to leave out. They want it kept quiet. This side of God, we'd rather not talk about. And Satan is constantly grooming his teachers and his preachers and his authors and his leaders to keep that truth about God out of the public marketplace. Keep it quiet. And so the message of positive thinkers and positive word movement preachers refuse to talk about sin and judgment and repentance and certainly the wrath of God. Michael Horton, who is an evangelical author and and teacher, recently reviewed and summarized the messages that dominate uh, Christian TV and radio. He said, you can boil down the basic premise of their message to this. God is nice. You're nice. So be nice. There's truth to that. And you could add this. And if you will be nice, God will be nicer to you. That gospel then is nothing more than behavioral modification that somehow manipulates God to be good in your direction. This is, ladies and gentlemen, another gospel. I agree with one author who wrote a shallow gospel presentation that does not present the reality of eternal judgment, the reality of the law of God, the reality of condemnation, eternal hell, does not warn of God's wrath, that does not crush the sinner under the weight of his violation of the law of God, that does not make him stand before God guilty and without excuse. The gospel presentation that does not do this is not a true gospel presentation. And as I thought about why this message would be so absent today, it has to track back to the loss of the authority of the Word of God, right? The reason that I'm even now just basically spending time uh, implicitly defending the biblical gospel and explicitly defending both sides, as it were, of the nature of the gospel and the nature of God, which tracks back then to what we believe to be the authority of scriptural's definition of the doctrine of God's wrath and eternal judgment, is because if I didn't spend this time, uh, for the most part, very little is ever said about this, and for the most part coming in from perhaps the world system, you frankly would not believe what we are going to spend time dissecting. Yours is not going to believe it. The mind of even the Christian is shocked by it. Meditate on it sometime. Think about the reality of what we've already read. Drinking the unmixed wrath of God as wine. Being tormented in fire forever. And I I will tell you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this. If it were not for the Bible, I would not believe it. I don't want to believe it. But I do, because the Bible so clearly tells it, and I believe the Bible is the word of God. And the angel will here deliver four characteristics of the expression of the wrath of God. I wanted to get through all four. We're going to get through two. The first characteristic is that the wrath of God is personal. Notice the personal pronouns that appear in this text, beginning with verse 9 about the middle part, and you could perhaps circle them. If anyone, anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and Brimstone. This is not metaphorical. This is not metaphysical. This is not ethereal. This is personal reality. This is literal experience. The individuals, and this peak is given to us here, but it will be fleshed out later on as as all the unbelievers are judged before God and cast into the lake of fire. God gives us a body that is able to enjoy eternity and its glory, and he gives the unbeliever a body capable of experiencing the horrors of what we've just read. This This is the horror of a person here who experiences this literal submission to the Antichrist, and it will find its way back into the book of Revelation in a literal place of torment, of literal fire and brimstone. And many, I can't believe it, but many evangelicals within the church are now denying that this is the truth, and they are effectively sc- scrambling for loopholes. How do you deny? what we just read? How do you sort of wash it out of the gospel? How does it just become God really does love you, don't worry about all that, and everybody's eventually going to get in? You don't arrive at denying a literal eternal hell without doing several things first and foremost. You don't deny any key doctrine or start there. You simply begin with redefining it. You redefine it. In fact, you start by redefining scripture. And one of the most popular ways to redefine scripture in your generation and mine is in terms of this keyword relevance. In other words, the only parts of the Bible that matter are parts that we have decided are relevant. And if we don't think they're relevant, we're not going to worry about them. Never mind that. The Bible makes it very clear that all of it is the word of God and all of it is profitable in some way. If you're thinking to yourself, yeah, you know what, I I do hear a lot about that word today. And I've heard the church talk about it a lot in recent years. Actually, if you back into American history, you'll discover where the stage was set for our generation and we're still feeling the effects in our modern American scene that go back to the early 1900s and one particular messenger who preached another gospel. So why don't you just sit back and let me give you a little tour of American church history. In the 1920s, a liberal Baptist pastor named Harry Emerson Fosdick was extremely, extremely popular. Even though he was a Baptist, for some reason, he was pastoring a Presbyterian church and uh, was called up on charges in the session for heresy. He avoided the charges of heresy by simply resigning from the church. And with the full funding of John D Rockefeller and all of his money a new interdenominational church called Riverside Church was built on the, overlooking the Hudson River and he was placed as pastor and it was soon packed to capacity. Fosdick was a best-selling author of books related to positive thinking and the generous grace of God. These are terms that are still bantered about by even newer authors. He literally influenced seminaries and pastors across the country. In fact, at the height of his fame, uh, he, his, his picture graced the cover of Time magazine in 1930. In an interview in 1928, which sort of set the whole thing ablaze, his words became the standard for American pastors who wanted to be accepted. They wanted the church to be accepted by culture. They wanted the church to be viewed as something other than hellfire and brimstone and instead be welcomed by culture. And so his words were especially meaningful as they walked away from Bible exposition and verse-by-verse teaching. In this rather seminal interview, in fact, you can read all of it online, Fosdick said these words, Preachers who pick out texts from the Bible and then proceed to give their historic settings, their logical meaning in the context, their place in the theology of the writer, with a few practical reflections, are grossly misusing the Bible. Nobody, he said, who speaks to the public assumes that the vital interests of the people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago, which led immediately a lot of ministers... To say, you know, we've felt that way all along and now we've got our champion. Uh, of course that's true. I mean, how could we have been so old-fashioned to do what Paul told uh, Timothy to do in preaching the what? The word. Second Timothy 4.2. I mean, we're, we're well past believing, and we should be now as sophisticated as we are, in believing that the words of Scripture are actually inspired by God and profitable to effectively, that is, thoroughly equip the believer for life. There's got to be something than this old book. So we're way past that. Trouble is, Fosdick was heard and created a movement. Another movement was founded to try to Battle. It was called the Fundamentalists Movement, the Fundamentals, as they simply clearly laid out the fundamentals of the faith. And Fosdick preached a message that was trumpeted by Rockefeller's own money, put into print, and it circled the globe, called, And Shall the Fundamentalists Win? He became the inventor in modern terminology of what we call today the seeker-driven church. For many today, it is a badge of honor. To me, it is a horrifying badge. In the seeker movement, the desire to relate to the unbeliever in the assembly, in church, in worship, is more important than the desire to convict the unbeliever. Uh, The desire to be relevant overshadows the command to be biblical. And so preaching, if it can be called that, begins with the needs of the audience rather than the scripture, which leads to the transformation of the audience. There's a world of difference. With almost prophetic precision, Fosdick wrote these words that are now considered gospel truth in the evangelical church, and I quote him, who seriously supposes that one in a hundred in our congregation cares what Moses, Isaiah, Paul or John meant in those verses. So the preacher should not end, but start with thinking about the audience's vital needs. And then let the whole sermon be organized around a constructive endeavor to meet those needs. All this is good sense and good psychology. Sound familiar? The church growth methods of the late 20th century that bought his lies, that took people away from the word of God in the pulpits, void of the word of God, are really nothing more now than the repackaging of the lies of Harry Emerson Fosdick. In fact, one of the most popular authors today who really did nothing more than bring Harry Emerson Fosdick into modern church growth method was not a pastor, not a theologian, but a pollster named George Barna. And he wrote another book that created a firestorm and, and sort of reinvented a number of new terminologies. The book was entitled Marketing the Church. It's hard to say that in a positive aim, but that's how he intended it to be, and that's how many bought it up to be. And they scrambled to the bookstores to buy it as a best-selling book. In which he wrote, and I quote, now think of what you've just heard from Fosdick. Here's what he said. It is critical that we, he's speaking to pastors, keep in mind that a fundamental principle of Christian communication is this the audience not the message is sovereign if our advertising i guess he means our preaching is going to stop people in the midst of hectic schedules our message has to be adapted to the needs of the audience when we produce communication that is based on a take it or leave it proposition rather than on sensitivity to people's needs People are going to reject our message. And we don't want to be rejected, and we don't want the message rejected, and so we begin with their needs. We sort of slip in the gospel. Whatever you do, in other words, remember the feelings of your audience are more important than delivering the truth to the audience. And now you see why you end up with no sin, no judgment, no hell, no guilt, no wrath. Just read the messages of Jesus Christ. Read his conversations. One of the things that will strike you is how sensitive he was to the feelings of the Pharisees. You remember that time where he called them a brood of butterflies? Oh, wait. A brood of snakes, I believe is what he said. And Now, if that isn't twisted enough, Barney goes on and those around him, he's not the only one. To explain, the, the apostle Paul felt this way. I didn't know that. Well, he writes, Paul studied strategies and tactics that would enable him to attract the most prospects and realize the greatest number of conversions. Are you kidding? Let Paul speak for himself. When I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. In other words, I didn't come to you with a strategy or a tactic to realize the greatest number of conversions. He wrote further, for I determined not to know anything among you or to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Even when he went out and spoke to the philosophers, you could boil it down to basically, I know what you believe, you're religious, but you happen to be in trouble with God. He's storing up his wrath, Paul said to them. And it will come through this man, the God-man who rose from the dead, so you need to repent quite a strategy that's why paul ended up in jail and there were so many death threats on his life that he narrowly escaped he was not received by his culture nor was he appreciated he says when i came to you i didn't begin with your felt needs i began with the character of christ What mattered most to me was not that I was relevant to you, but that you were related to Jesus Christ. That's the most significant thing. And so I delivered to you the gospel of Christ's crucifixion. He said there in 1 Corinthians 2 that I read. His crucifixion. What is that? That is the statement that Christ suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. You remember in the garden... And I think it's related to here in in subtle implication as he talks about you will drink the cup of the wrath of God. You remember Jesus Christ in the garden said, take this what from me? Take this cup. Because as a man he fully understood the horror of the wrath of God the Father and he referred to it as a cup. But praise God, Jesus Christ did in fact willingly take that cup and drink the wrath of God so that we never have to drink this cup that we're told in Revelation chapter 14 will be drunk by those who do not believe. I'm amazed that now we hear the denial of church leaders. And again, it goes all the way back to the redefining of Scripture which leads you to be able to openly deny it. A man who said recently, a leader in the emergent church movement, when somebody asks me if Christ is the only way to heaven, now isn't that the question you want to hear somebody say? How do we get to heaven? Is Christ the only way? What would you say? Yes. In a word. Yes, thank you. Uh what would the rest of you say? <laughs> yes? Yes. Uh, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. He said this, when people ask me if Christ is the only way to heaven, I got a problem with that. Because that assumes the primary purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to get people to escape hell and take them to heaven. (laughs) Of course it was. That was his primary purpose in coming to earth. Why did he die? so that you could escape hell and go to heaven. Simple as that. He said, in fact, himself, I have come for this purpose. This is why I'm here. I came. I came to seek and to save those who are lost. Luke 19, verse 10. Say this with me. This is, this is radical truth in our generation, and I believe The fundamental truth of the gospel has been lost. So say it with me. For God so loved the world. Are you ready? Let's start again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Sounds like Christ came specifically to save us from hell and take us to heaven. How unique though is that gospel message today. Can there be anything greater than that message? Salvation is personal. You must accept Christ by faith in him alone. Just as salvation is personal, so is the coming wrath of God for those who do not believe. Secondly, not only is the wrath of God personal, it is terrible. Verse ten. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. This is no doubt one of the most compact, compressed sentences regarding the wrath of God found in all of Scripture. His wrath will come; it will be mixed in full strength. You can understand that as it, it, it is unmixed; it is undiluted. Even the Romans in the days of Christ believed that if you drank wine unmixed, you were barbaric. So they normally mixed it with one part a grape concentrate and three-part water. Here he says there's no dilution. There's no watering down. There's no mixing in the cup of wrath elements of mercy or compassion or, or grace. No wonder David said of that day, who may stand in your presence when you are angry? Psalm 76, 7. The word John used here to refer to wrath is the, is the Greek word thumos, or anger, I should say. Anger is thumos. Mixed in full strength in the cup of his thumos. That's that gives us our, our, our word or the basis of it. The thermometer measures heat. His anger is hot. He is hot with anger. We can demonstrate elements of thumos as well when the temperature rises, right? And we become angry. And we say that somebody's fuse is short and boom, there's an explosion. I'm sure none of you here are guilty of that this past week. I saw a glimpse of this one afternoon and I've never forgotten it. I was about 10 years old. I can still picture where I was standing in the side, uh, on the side of that big one acre lot yard about two homes up from my house. And, and I, was, I was in trouble. Um, I was in, in, in front of a guy who was bigger than I was, at least a head, taller. He was stronger than I was. He was older than I was. And I had... Somehow made him mad. I'm sure I was delivering the gospel to him in some fashion. But I I made him really angry, and I remember him cowering over me, and I knew I was in deep, deep trouble. I was short for my age for most of. My uh, young years until about 11th grade in high school, and I just shot up. And so I was a little skinny, a head of red hair. You got to use your imagination. And I was in deep trouble. And I don't know what happened, but I just remember I ball up my fist, and the next thing I know, that big guy is holding his nose, which is starting to bleed. And it was one of those awkward moments where I thought, now what do I do? And I could see in his eyes nothing less than Thumos. I didn't know the Greek language yet, but I knew that's what it was. And so I began to run and I ran across that lot and he was behind me. He was saying all sorts of unbiblical things (laughs) about my future. And I remember there was this chain link fence in front of me as I was running barefoot across that yard and that about four feet high. And and that fence was the only thing that separated me from a happy childhood (laughs) and I needed to get over it. And I don't even remember touching it. I'm sure I leapfrogged and I was over it. He ran into it, stopped, he lumbered over it, and then I was able to escape and live to be your pastor and tell you the story. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you something. You, you, you know, just in the eyes of some person who's angry, you, you don't want to be around, do you? You don't, you don't want to be there when thumas occurs. Can, can you imagine thumas? Undiluted, this rage from God. And another word he he throws in there, he says the word wrath, you have anger and wrath. Uh, The word for wrath is orge, it gives us our word orgy. It means settled, deliberate, unhinged wrath. And that's the gospel. David said it well in Psalm 2. Now, therefore, show discernment. In other words, be, be smart. Do the smartest thing you could ever do. What? Take warning. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And then he says, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's both sides of the gospel. You are in deep trouble with God and he's angry with you. But run to him. Now this is the day of grace. Take refuge in him and escape the wrath of God. Run to him now. You will not outrun him later. Escape into him. You will one day not be able to escape from him. His wrath is personal and it is, it is terrible. So this is the gospel of the angel or a portion of it. It's a different gospel from the messengers, names like Metatron and others who bring messages of success and, and your own divinity and good times. The world has followed and is following the voice of these false messages, these pseudo-pastors, these pseudo-spiritual advisors, and they will be led past a desert which would be comforting. They will be led beyond into the chasm of hell forever. See, this is the other side of the gospel, and it shouldn't be a secret. If you do not believe the gospel, follow the words of David, show discernment, take warning, Give glory to God. Give your life to Christ. Give him your sin. He'll forgive you in this day of, gr- of grace. If you're, if you're a believer, this is, this is the opportunity for us to reflect on the grace of God in our lives and thank him that he opened our eyes that the God of this world had blinded so that we might see the glorious gospel of Christ. Let me invite you to receive the pardon of Christ if you don't have it as yours. Let me wrap things up quickly by taking you back in time to a scene that still marks our system of jurisprudence with with some unique uh, incidences. In 1833, the U.S. Supreme Court had to get involved with a rather interesting decision. It had to do with George Wilson and James Porter. They had together robbed a U.S. mail train. They were caught. They were brought to trial. They were sentenced to be hung by the neck until dead. James Porter went to the gallows first and was executed. George Wilson's friends interceded on his behalf and it went all the way up to the president and President Andrew Jackson wrote a pardon, pardoned him, issued a formal pardon. The charges resulting in the death sentence were completely dropped. He would have to serve a prison term but then he would be able to be released. Incredibly, George Wilson refused the pardon. And the sheriff didn't know what to do. You can't hang a pardoned man, especially one pardoned by the president. So Wilson was returned to court as they attempted to, to force him to acknowledge and accept the pardon upon him. And he refused. He says, I don't want it. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court. I was able to read some of the court documents. They're available uh, to the public. It was recorded that Wilson chose to, and I quote, waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon referred to. It's a long way of saying I don't want it. The Attorney General argued before the Supreme Court, and he made this comment, made a lot of them. I'll give you one sentence he said this the court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon until he claims the benefit of it the case was argued and then it was decided supreme court justice john marshall wrote the opinion again a long opinion i'll give you two sentences quote a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential and delivery is not completed Without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it be rejected, we have no power in a court to force it upon him. And George Wilson was hung by the neck until dead. The wrath of God revealed by this angel that will warn the world one day. You have the benefit of hearing his warning today. Receive the pardon in and through Christ and give him everything of yourself and receive from him everything of himself and be set free. Father, thank you for the delivery of clear, Unmistakable, undeniable truth if we indeed hold to the truth of your word which you know we do as an assembly. I pray for anyone, Father, today who has not received the pardon, has not personally repented and offered themselves to you without reservation just as you receive from them all their sin without reservation not one sin gets slipped out all of it forgiven that today would be the day and if you know Christ as your savior would you stand true and firm that this is the gospel in a world filled with even preachers who are denying The purpose of Christ to save those he came to seek. He is the seeker. He is the one. And through us, his messengers, we join the Father in seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The world runs from you, Father, and you've asked us to catch up with him in any way we can to deliver the truth of the gospel. Help us, we pray. Thank you for your amazing love and grace.